If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sunday, August 6, 2023. I'm Ryan Schmelz. When Congress returns from their August recess, they'll be in a race to fund the government and avoid a government shutdown. But it seems like there's a number of hurdles lawmakers will have to jump over to get to the finish line. Maybe a government shutdown. Some conservatives would like to shut the government down and probably why they don't truly address this until about December. I'm Jared Halpern. The Biden administration is placing new rules on insurance providers to ensure mental health is easily accessible. But we also have a major workforce gap. We know we need more mental health professionals of all types. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. The clock is ticking on a September 30th deadline for Congress to finish the appropriations process and fund the government. The House began their August recess with only passing one of 12 appropriations bills. They'll only have a few weeks to fund the government after they return on September 12th. Whatever the House passes is surely to have issues in the Senate, where Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer does not like the cuts being proposed. The bottom line is, I think that we had an agreement When it came to default, all four parties agreed, and within a week, House Republicans abandoned that agreement. The way to make this work is do it in a bipartisan way, like we are doing in the Senate. If you do it in a partisan way, you're heading to a shutdown. And I am really worried that that's where the House Republicans are headed. Lawmakers are growing more and more concerned of a government shutdown. Conservative Republican and House Freedom Caucus member Bob Good, who wants to address a national debt sitting at over $32 trillion, says most of the American people won't even miss the government if it was shut down. I would add to that we should not fear a government shutdown. Most of what we do up here is bad anyway. Most of what we do up here hurts the American people. When we do stuff to the American people by promising to do things for the American people, Essential operations continue. 85 percent, as Mr. Biggs has just uh, given me that number, continues. Most American people won't even miss if the government is shut down temporarily. But what can we expect when Congress returns? And where do both sides in the House and Senate stand? They usually come into September without having a lot of these spending bills done. Fox's senior congressional correspondent, Chad Pergram. They passed precisely one uh, back in July uh, in the House of Representatives. Uh, the Senate has approved all of theirs in committee. Uh, but, you know, that's a little further down the train tracks. But we always go into September in recent history of looking at a potential government shutdown. And the, the, the odds are bigger this year because you have this uprising among House conservatives who don't want to even agree to what was uh, put forth in the debt ceiling bill back in the spring, something they did not support. And they're like, hey, you know, we got to blow this up uh, this fall. I mean, you had uh, Bob Good, the Republican from Virginia, saying it might be better to shut the government down. 
And one thing that we're hearing from a lot of conservatives who do not like the current trajectory of the government in terms of its spending is they want to see spending levels drop down to the 2019 level pre-COVID. What's kind of the issue we're seeing from Democrats when it comes to that? Well, Democrats, obviously, they didn't like some of them didn't like, uh, you know, lowering this uh, this spending number, you know, to the debt ceiling level. That was the problem they had. Uh, so, you know, mo- more Democrats are going to be on board here than Republicans. That's not going to be the, the, the problem here. It's going to be trying to get these conservatives on board. And you always say it's all about the numbers, right? In terms of the House side, what, what kind of numbers are we looking at right now? Because we do see a lot of division about where this appropriations process should go and what the, the number is that's healthy enough to get enough people on board to pass something. Ryan, it'll be whatever they can get to work. And nobody knows exactly what that looks like. I mean, they just don't know yet. It really is going to be that simple. I mean, if whatever the combination is, but can Kevin McCarthy, if he sees that that number of Democrats who are willing to support this is, is higher than Republicans, and that's what happened in the debt ceiling, that's going to be a problem. And what kind of pressure is McCarthy under with this? Tremendous. Tremendous, because, you know, they didn't like that debt ceiling package. I mean, that was the whole issue here, that Republicans, conservatives thought that he gave up too much. They didn't like him negotiating with President Biden. And when we look at what happened with the Senate, too, it looks like it's been a little bit quieter on that end. It seems like this is kind of how it's usually been with the Senate, where it's not really a lot of finger pointing back and forth. Usually there are some issues with with what each side comes up with, but it hasn't gotten maybe the press attention that we've seen from the House side. Well, the, the, issue, the issue there is that they did pass their bills in committee. Now, each of those bills has to get 60 votes to get past a, a filibuster. And that's why, you know, Kevin McCarthy thinks that maybe, you know, you got to keep you got to see what the House is going to be willing to do. There's a combination in the House that works better than in the Senate, meaning that you can get that cocktail of a lot of Democrats and some Republicans involved and ready to pass the bill. The problem, though, is that the Republicans are in control. Will Kevin McCarthy be willing to go there? Chuck Schumer, he can get, you know, most of his Democrats, if not all on board and then without too much, you know, hesitancy, probably pluck off at least 10 or 12 Republicans to get past cloture to avoid a filibuster there. But but again, again, that's why this is more on the House. It's not really on the Senate as much. And when we talk about this issue, certainly a lot of the American people and a lot of lawmakers raise this issue as well. And that's the fact that they think that the government is spending too much money, that the deficit is out of control. And of course, the national debt's over 32 trillion right now. You know, what realistically could we see in terms of deficit reduction with this with this appropriations process? Or could we see any at all? This is where Kevin McCarthy said that maybe they would have have have, you know, they're going to spend less. Right. But, you know, this doesn't put much of a dent. It puts it puts a ding in the debt. Again, and this is what we're talking about, discretionary spending. This is what Congress controls, which is only about, you know, really about 30 percent of all federal spending that goes out the door each year. If you really want to change the fiscal trajectory, and this is what Fitch, the credit ratings agency, said a couple of days ago when they downgraded the credit worthiness of the United States, they said, hey, this has to this has to change because the fiscal trajectory is not good over the next couple of years. And when you have an issue with the spending bills and you're only talking about the 30 percent, that's the discretionary spending and not entitlements, uh, you're not going to make a dent in, in, in overall deficit reduction. And, and it seems that if, if Congress wanted to truly address spending and the national debt, that the areas that have to target would be defense and uh, entitlements. And it just seems like Congress isn't really interested in doing that right now. Well, defense consumes more than half of all what we call discretionary spending. That's the money that Congress appropriates each year. And then you pile on top of that uh, stuff for DHS or veterans, and you're getting well into 
you know, 85, 86, 87 percent of the federal spending, uh, you know, after you get past Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. And so they're looking at cutting from this 12 percent portion of the pie. That's nothing. You're not going to be able to make a dent in federal spending unless you address entitlements. And there is never an appetite to do that. They have nibbled around the edges for years, but never made a, a big show of this. And so when we kind of look forward uh, to what's going to happen next, the House is going to come back from recess in, in uh, I believe, the f- second week in September, and they've got to pass, I believe, 11 appropriations bills from there. And then they have to go in into negotiation phases with the Senate because we're expecting these bills to look very different. That's, that's not what's going to happen. They're not going to pass 11 appropriations bills. What they're going to do, and you allude to the one that they passed in July, they're going to have to uh, pass some sort of an interim spending bill, what we call a CR, short for continuing resolution, which funds the entire government uh, at the current levels. In other words, that's a little bit of a cut because the federal spending traditionally goes up. Uh, Kevin McCarthy might be able to make the case that they're actually, quote, cutting spending, close quote, because they're operating on a temporary spending plan for a short period of, uh, of time. But uh, getting all that done before September 30th is not going to happen because you can't, I mean, even if they worked around the clock from the middle of, of September. And that's presuming the reason they didn't pass two appropriations bills back in July and the reason the House started its recess uh, a day early is because they had a dispute on the agriculture spending bill. And so they cut everybody loose a day early. So if you couldn't get an agreement even on that one, and that's supposed to be one of the easiest ones, you're not going to get an agreement on something more, you know, controversial like uh, funding for Homeland Security, now, uh, you know, funding for, you know, the Justice Department, uh, Jack Smith. Uh, There's some Republicans who want to fund, uh, want to cut the funding for him. So, you know, getting this all done, uh, and this is why we're really staring at a, at a bad scenario probably at the end of, the, uh, of, uh, of September, the end of the government's fiscal year, maybe a government shutdown. Some conservatives would like to shut the government down and probably why they don't truly address this until about December. Right. And I believe Virginia Representative Bob Good said at a press conference not too long ago, uh, a government shutdown, most Americans won't even miss it. How, how close are we and how much more likely are we looking at a government shutdown compared to the last time we talked about this, Chad? You have a lot of uh, conservatives who would frankly like to see that happen. Uh, they, they are opposed to government. Bob Good is one of them. Um, you know, he represents a district that's you know, there's some rural parts of that, but it's just close enough to Washington, D.C. that there are some constituents who work for the federal government or jobs are associated with the federal government uh, that might disagree with him vehemently on that because they're not getting, uh, you know, paid and, and so on. They usually pay these workers retroactively. But if you talk to probably some of Bob Good's fellow Virginia representatives, say Jerry Connolly from Fairfax County, just outside Washington, D.C., Don Beyer, the Maryland delegation, they obviously support a lot of federal workers and people who work for the federal government, and they're going to have a very different view of this than Bob Good. But again, there is this new dynamic where there are some conservatives who actually think it would be a good idea to shut down the government. I have been around here since the early 1990s. And every so often, every few years, there's a group of freshmen or a group of, of Republicans, it's always been on the Republican side, who come in and have argued that maybe shutting down the government isn't such a bad thing. We had that happen in 1995 with a trio of shutdowns. Again, they didn't have all of the, the spending bills. Uh, you know, There were, I think, a couple that they had in place before the big trio of government shutdowns in the fall of winter in, in 1995. And Newt Gingrich was Speaker of the House. And Bill Clinton, politically, ate Newt Gingrich for lunch. And Newt Gingrich was never the same after that, after that trio of government shutdowns. Uh, This has usually not worked out well for the Republican side of the aisle.
And why do they think this time might be different and, and how it could benefit them politically this time? Because it's about uh, grandstanding, frankly. Uh, you can get up and say, we fought against something. Uh, we, we made our stand. It works for them in their districts. They have people who actually want to shut down the government, even though they might benefit from the federal government with the military or something. I remember a few years ago when we had the big government shutdown in 2011, I had uh, you know one member from Missouri, Vicki Hartzler, uh, who said to me that her constituents wanted to shut down the government, everything but the military. But it doesn't work that way because you have to, you know, you have people who say, no, it, 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 you know, it's, it's, you know, winner take all here. So, again, um, there would be a mixture of Democrats and Republicans in the House who would vote to keep the government open. But can Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, tolerate that politically? And, and that, that's kind of the next question here. Can McCarthy work with Democrats to get this done? And is that going to be uh, enough to potentially come to a, an agreement and also get enough Republicans on board, too? If he does, you know, then then some of these folks on the right are going to say, you know, this is another, uh, you know, chip against uh, Kevin McCarthy. We supported you for speaker. You had more Democrats who voted for the debt ceiling deal. You know, that's the dynamic here. The Democrats are saying, wait a minute, you know, we agreed to this debt ceiling deal. And now you have conservatives in the House who want to spend less than that. So that wasn't part of the deal. That's the problem. And if Kevin McCarthy, now Kevin McCarthy is kind of drifting toward that, at least politically, uh, again, maybe to save his own political hide. But that's a problem when it comes to actually governing. So he might, you know, be willing, you know, to associate with the Democrats, pass a bill with a combination of Democrats and Republicans. And then you have these other conservatives say, wait a minute, what happened? And this is where they could potentially move to vacate the chair, although nobody has yet done that or talked genuinely about doing that. And when Congress gets back in September, what are a couple of spending battles that, that you're going to be watching for? I think some that stand out would be Ukraine, uh, potentially a new FBI headquarters, plus just the FBI budget in general. Anything else that you're looking at? Yeah, they, I mean, that, they have to see if they can do some sort of uh, supplemental tack on for Ukraine. I mean, there was some talk about this when we talk about a supplemental. So there are 12 annual spending bills. This will be the 13th spending bill. Anytime they do a supplemental spending bill, they did these for wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and after 9-11 and so on. And that's why that's one of the reasons when they do these big, you know, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, if not trillions of dollars in spending. That's why, you know, among other reasons, the deficit has gone up. I think that's going to be a real flashpoint in the Republican Party. And as we get a little deeper into understanding these alleged business dealings that Hunter Biden and maybe I'll underscore that maybe President Biden might have been associated with, at least according to uh, to some Republicans, when they, they talked to Devin Archer, who was Hunter Biden's business associate. Uh, do they come back around and say, hey, maybe we shouldn't be spending money on Ukraine at all? I mean, th most Republicans in the House and Senate right now are willing to spend money to help Ukraine win the war against Russia. But there is a certain contingent, a very vocal contingent that's not willing to go there. And that group might get larger as we get further down track. And kind of transitioning into Devin Archer here, he spoke to some members of the House Oversight Committee plus some counsel earlier this week. Is there anything that we learned from here that stands out the most? The interesting thing is that it looked like if you go through the transcript that there was this effort by Hunter Biden to always tout his ties to his father and say, you know, we can kind of, you know, help you in Washington, D.C. with a wink and a nod and demonstrate access to power. Now, Republicans will say that that demonstrates a direct line to President Biden. It's a little more dicey than that. Uh, Dan Goldman, the Democratic representative from New York, he was the only Democrat in the meeting with Devin Archer. There are only two Republicans 
Republicans, Jim Jordan, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, and Andy Biggs, Republican from Arizona. And Goldman uh, basically said, oh, you know, these were just very casual conversations. They talked about the weather and other niceties. And that's not, in fact, the case. Uh, you know, you had a, a meeting that uh, former, he was then the vice president, President Biden had at this Tony Washington, D.C. restaurant with the uh, wife of the mayor of Moscow. And it was, this was back in 2014. And just a couple of weeks before, there had been this deposit of $3.5 million uh, by this, uh, this woman uh, into an account that was associated with uh, a Hunter Biden-related business. And so people are starting to ask questions about this. There was a wire transfer for a $142,000 car, which we believe was a Porsche. Um, you know, again, does this really fall on the president? Maybe, uh, but but when you go through that transcript, you know it, it's not exactly the smoking gun that Republicans were looking for, but it, it starts to fill out some of the narrative that they've been curating for a while now about the president. And it might not have anything in here that seems incriminating right now, but it seems like this is at least pushing House Republicans to continue to want to, this investigation to move further and to maybe bring new witnesses in. Now, I asked the Oversight Committee if. if you know what the ultimate next steps are here we don't have too much clarity on that but where do you think or where do you see this going now after this well the first thing is going to be that you know you're probably going to see a proposal when they get back in september to cut the funding for the justice department to trim the funding for the special counsel jack smith uh you know whether or not that flies or not we don't know uh, i don't know if they i don't know if they can defund jack smith uh but that that's highly unlikely but you could see a, a standoff over that i mean on one hand I could see a scenario where Republicans, you know, Kevin McCarthy and Elise Stefanik, the chair of the conference, and everybody else, they talk about, well, the DOJ is weaponized against uh, the person we support for president, Donald Trump. And to be fair here, Kevin McCarthy has not endorsed, uh, you know, former President Trump, but Elise Stefanik has. So how can you possibly say that on one hand? And then when you have the opportunity, which is the most powerful tool that Congress has, which is the power of the purse, and then you don't use that to your advantage? You see, that's that's gonna be that big flashpoint. Uh, you're gonna have a push when they return to impeach somebody, uh, maybe President Biden, you know, the, there was an effort here by Lauren Boebert, the Republican from Colorado, to try to impeach uh, the president back in June. Kevin McCarthy was able to kind of sidetrack that. And now Andy Ogles, who's a freshman Republican from Tennessee, says if there's not action on this right away, I'm gonna to move to impeach him again. Kevin McCarthy would say, well, this has to go through a process. It has to go through committee. And what they would do in the term that Kevin McCarthy keeps using, and this is actually the parliamentary term, is that you would launch an impeachment inquiry, which is what you do before you try to impeach. And you, that gives the committees a little more access to issue subpoenas and documents and have witnesses come in and deliver depositions. But Kevin McCarthy heretofore has said, oh, I don't think we're ready to go to that you know, realm yet, an impeachment inquiry, we're just gonna talk about it. And the reason being is that it's about the math. It's about the math because he only has a four-seat majority, and would he have the votes on the House floor to launch an impeachment inquiry? He has 18 House Republicans in districts which were carried by President Biden in 2020. Mental health is health. That was the crux of President Biden's message late last month at a White House event rolling out new rules on health insurance providers. I don't know what the difference between breaking your arm and having a mental breakdown is. It's health. 
There's no distinction. It's health. But the president says for too long, insurance companies have been able to skirt legislation signed into law more than a decade ago, requiring equal coverage of physical and mental health. Their networks of providers are badly inadequate with far fewer psychiatrists, therapists, and other mental health professionals compared to all other mental, all other medical specialties. Now, as a result, even with private insurance, patients are often forced to seek out-of-network care at significantly higher cost if they can find it. In an attempt to expand mental health care options, President Biden signed an executive order requiring insurers to conduct meaningful analysis of mental health options compared to other medical coverage and limit exceptions and restrictive prior authorization policies. In a State of the Union address, the president laid out what he calls a unity agenda, legislative goals he thinks should win broad bipartisan support. Expanding mental health care is one of those items. Kristen Link-Young is deputy director of the White House Domestic Policy Council for Health and Veterans and has worked previously in health policy. We spoke about these new mental health rules and next steps to expand mental health access. So the mental health parity law is a 15-year-old is a piece of legislation that was enacted on, on a bipartisan basis. And in the Obama-Biden administration, the first rules implementing this policy were put in place. And, and there was really a lot of success in getting rid of numeric barriers to accessing mental health care. So health plans are no longer charging higher co-pays for mental health services. They're not putting arbitrary visit limits on the number of times they'll pay for you to see a mental health provider. But where the law um, has had some gaps is in, um, is in sort of less quantifiable barriers to care. Things like how big health insurance provider networks are and whether there is a therapist in network who can treat you or your child, as well as like paperwork barriers and prior authorization barriers that can make it difficult to get your health plan to actually pay for care. And so the rule that this administration released in July is really focused on this additional set of problems, those, those non-quantifiable barriers, like making sure there are enough providers in network and, and getting rid of these paperwork barriers. And so it really builds on the success of the first 15 years of the mental health parity rules and, and continues the implementation and focuses on the, these challenges to make mental health services even easier to access. So it, it sounds like a lot of this is sort of about accessing your, your insurance to cover the, these types of services. And I won't go too much into my own personal uh, story. I've talked about it on this podcast. I took a leave of absence earlier this year to deal with some mental health issues myself. And I remember at the time, as I was looking for resources, looking for help, trying to find therapists, that there were therapists, uh, thankfully, covered under my insurance. But a lot of therapists don't take insurance. And I was always curious, is that because therapists don't want to be involved in, in sort of the insurance business or are insurers just choosing not to sort of include them in the uh, list of providers that, that they uh, have on their roster? I think that's, that's exactly right. Obviously, individual therapists and other medical practitioners make their own decisions about how they're going to practice and what insurance networks they'll join. But we think a big way to make sure that people can get better access to these services is to create better incentives for them to join insurance company networks. And so the new rules are really about holding insurance companies accountable for building networks that are big enough 
to meet the needs of the, the patient population they serve. And so that means insurance companies may need to increase the reimbursement rates they offer. They may need to take steps to just make it easier for therapists to, to join networks with less of these paperwork burdens and, um, and additional uh, steps that, that people might have to take to join the networks. And, and we think the, the outcome here will be broader networks that give people much more meaningful access to the services that, that they need. I think we all know people who, who have had the experience of trying to find a therapist in network for themselves or for their child, calling the people that they find on the insurance company website, discovering that none of them are taking new patients. Mm -hmm. And so people are, are forced to pay out of pocket, sometimes hundreds of dollars a week to get the care that they need to stay well. And, and that shouldn't happen. When insurance covers a benefit, you should be able to, to get the services you need through your insurance company network. What's the challenge um, in ensuring that there are adequate uh, providers, especially maybe in more rural areas? I think here in D.C., it's pretty easy generally to find a provider if you want to get that help. I don't know what the level of, of providers are in, in maybe more rural areas, underserved communities that I know often have a, a gap, not just with mental health, but with physical health care as well. That, that's exactly right. One of the problems that we're trying to solve is about insurance coverage for mental health providers, but we also have a major workforce gap. We know we need more mental health professionals of all types, whether it's psychiatrists and psychologists or therapists and, and, and social workers or peer support specialists who can be really helpful for people who are struggling with substance use disorder. We need more of these workers, especially in rural areas. And so we're taking a variety of steps to improve the, the diversity and reach of mental health professionals. We're supporting new training programs to train more psychiatrists and psychologists as well as more therapists. We are making it easier to access telehealth services. So we're working to make sure that, that people who may not be able to physically get to the office of a provider can still access the care they need through telehealth. There's also a lot of research going on into some new app-based products that um, offer some mental health support uh, at scale through various technologies, and that's a really promising area of research that we are continuing to support to really leverage our workforce and make sure that everybody can get the help they need. Is there a hope that by having expanded resources, by making it easier for insurance to cover mental health coverage, that those who may be you know, don't want to admit to, you know, maybe needing these services or not really sure if they need these services are, are more open. I know that there is still a bit of a stigma. I think that is starting to lessen. But but how big of that is a challenge, sort of the stigma associated with, um, you know, asking for help, going out and saying, you know what, I think I need to, to take care of my mental health, not just my physical health? It, it can take a lot of courage for people to recognize they need help and, and take the first steps to reach out. And we think it's important that when, when people are ready to begin on that journey, when they are, are able to raise their hand and say they need help, that we get rid of as many barriers as possible to actually getting that care. If when you're ready to seek help, you have to spend weeks trying to find somebody in network and calling a lot of different therapists, there's a, a, a real risk that you're not going to follow through on that and get the get the help you need after you've made that decision. And so the more we can do to get rid of those barriers and streamline the process so that when people uh, take that courageous step 
to get the help they need, it is a, a relatively smooth path to, to finding someone who can, who can treat them and, and give them the care they need to get well. I wanted to ask you as well, I know it's unrelated to uh, the rollout you guys had a couple of weeks ago at the White House, but uh, I know the administration is still trying to promote, trying to expand the 988 line. Um, what sort of successes, what, what sort of challenges remain uh, with this uh, new sort of support line for people to call that are in a mental health crisis? Just over a year ago, the administration launched the, the 988 crisis support line so that Anybody in crisis can dial 988 on a cell phone or on a landline and be connected to a trained crisis counselor. We've invested over a billion dollars in building out the network of people who are answering those calls so that anybody who, who calls is quickly connected to somebody who can talk with them. Services are also available via chat on a, on a website or via text message for people who are, are reaching out that way. And 988 has, over the, the last year, served 5 million people who have reached out and been connected to a crisis counselor um, to, to talk about whatever crisis they're facing and get referred to services um, and receive the, the immediate crisis support that they need. We are committed to continuing to invest the resources to enable this crisis support to, to be successful and to build more support in communities so that people in crisis can be easily connected to long-term support that, that can help them manage the conditions that are driving the crisis and, and get them the, the care that they need over the long term. And I know with uh, 988, you are also, uh, part of that investment is getting people who are specialized in um, certain services, right? I know that there's a, a veteran support service connected to it, LGBTQ plus service connected to it. That's exactly right. When folks dial 988, there's an option for, for veterans to, to press one and be connected to specialized veteran support services um, for people who are LGBTQ plus to, to be connected to specialized support. Um, and those are important components of the, the services that are, are being delivered so that people are, are speaking with trained counselors who have experience with exactly the, the kinds of challenges that they may be facing. But everybody can dial 988. It's a resource that's there for anybody who needs it anybody who finds himself in crisis. Um, and and it, it, it's there to support people and to, to help them get that, you know, immediate support in a, in a crisis so that they can um, begin a journey to, to get well. I'll finish with this because we opened the conversation talking about the bipartisan nature of the original uh, legislation that, that um, these executive orders were tied to. Uh, what is the next step? Do you need more legislation from Congress? Are you guys working on a new legislation as it relates to mental health service, as it relates to, to the insurance side of mental health? Congress has taken a number of important steps on a bipartisan basis. They expand the types of mental health providers that Medicare will cover. Uh, they've invested in certain workforce programs. Um, they've continued to support efforts to improve mental health services for kids in schools. And the president was was delighted to work with Congress on a bipartisan basis to, to get those pieces of legislation done. But there is absolutely more work that needs to be done and that we look forward to continuing to partner with Congress on. That includes even greater investment in the mental health workforce and in building out the, the providers that are available across the country. It includes more investment in prevention, in, um, in making sure that, that we are supporting programs that, that we know can prevent mental health conditions from developing in the first place or from, from getting worse. 
And we also need to continue to invest in, in ways to make care more, more convenient and lower cost. We think our, our rules around insurance coverage are an important step to, to lower costs, but there's more we can do to, to make health coverage more affordable for folks. We've called on Congress to require health insurance companies to cover three mental health visits with no cost sharing for folks so that we are further lowering that, that barrier to seeking care. Um, and, and we want to make care more convenient, located in, in primary care offices and in other locations in the community that people are familiar with to really, you know, just reduce those barriers to getting connected to the services that people need. Well, it's certainly an important uh, issue. Certainly, we, we have seen over the last couple of years that the mental health crisis, as many have described it in this country. And so uh, good to hear that the administration, Congress, working in a bipartisan way to, to find some solutions. And Kristen, I appreciate you uh, taking some time to talk to us about it. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for the conversation. That will do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington podcast. Next week, could Georgia be next? The district attorney in Atlanta has signaled she could make a move very soon on whether or not to indict former President Trump on violating state election laws. We'll have the latest on that case and others as we approach the first Republican presidential debate. And President Biden heads west as part of a cross-country effort to sell Bidenomics in his clean energy initiative. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.